So this is uh, the next segment of Ask Me Anything uh, from Thursday. The first part uh, that you should be able to find a link for it below. And some of these questions are repeat. People submitted them again to try to make sure that I would see them. And uh, this is Tim Prince's again on uh, having his credit card hacked a few times. And I talked about that in part one. But I wanted to add something else I've done recently is used a VPN, uh, virtual private network, on all of my devices. And a actually, it's, it's convenient for me because I'm not in the, in the continental U.S. right now. Uh, I always pick a country outside of where I am. Uh, this in th this does a, f a few things. It makes ad targeting more difficult and some other things, especially on your mobile devices. But also, like your data is always encrypted. It makes it really hard to to ever spoof. Even though it's it's gotten more and more difficult on the internet over the last few years, as everything's moved to secure secure connections um, but I still find it very useful uh, I use NordPeat NordVPN uh, which has servers all over the world and I find it's very fast uh, good connections and there's another one I use when I need faster upload rates um, and it's because of my Wi-Fi setup here it's called Speedify and it it's really great on cell phones because if you're connected to a mobile network and a Wi-Fi network, you can actually bond those together and get higher upload and download speeds. Uh, one thing I don't like about Speedify that Nord does better is Nord you can turn on basically all tracking blocking. Uh, so it'll block ads, it'll block, block all the tracking crap that's loaded on every website. Uh, and it, it's great. It's on a, on my phone and on my computer. It is fantastic to surf the internet without advertisements. Uh, it's great. Uh, and and that's another thing uh, on YouTube. If it, speaking of ads, if you use YouTube, especially on a mobile device, uh, particularly on Android, there's an app called YouTube Vanced. And you have to Google for it. It's not in the Google Play Store, but you can install it if you have an Android device. And it strips out all advertising from YouTube, which is, again, uh, if you watch YouTube videos, which I tend to watch some mostly educational ones, and I also use it to try to uh, improve my Serbian. It's really nice. It strips out all the ads uh, from the videos. So you have a YouTube experience like it used to be with absolutely no advertising. It's great. And I'm sure content creators will hate that. But uh, then again, actually, some content creators should probably actually die off and not be making content anyway. Uh, but I don't watch them, so I don't really care. All right. Um, if you're... Well, people are asking about body AI videos. An email went out, so check your email. Uh, Kirthi Kumar, I think I pronounced that. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, is asking me to rant a little bit about Game Changers. And I actually, as work, 
I mean, work's still really intense, but I do have pockets of downtime. I was going to put together a podcast series just completely disassembling that movie because uh, a lot of times movies like that are polemics. So they'll use some facts and they morph the story around the facts uh, to make their subjective position seem like the correct position. That That's a polemic. Um, any of Michael Moore's movies are all polemics. He has some factual information in there, but he weaves the story in such a way as to promote his position. And that's fine. Polemics are fine. The The problem I have is it's not positioned that way. It's positioned as truth and it's very much not i really there's very few true things in that movie at all i mean you can start with his opening statement of the what put him on this journey was learning that gladiators were vegetarians and that they were the world's ultimate athletes in the roman empire that is so fantastically wrong and and it makes me and it doesn't take much research when i heard that i wanted to verify it so i did i found the article that he was most likely referencing and i read it in its entirety as i always do and it had some some interesting points like those the gladiator bones that were tested were found in a mass grave pit of gladiators Uh, So, you know, that piqued my curiosity. So I started reading historical accounts of the gladiators, how they were fed, how they were trained. And there's this discrepancy in diet because uh, many, many historians believe that they were fed the worst food that was available. And but others, but they don't have documentation for that. Actually, the that's why the, the study of the mass grave was so important because it did show that they they did eat, uh, or it showed what they ate. And other historians said, well, the records show of the elite gladiators, the ones who actually lived and earned their freedom and earned and then earned money fighting in the, in the arena. So these were, these were the elite of the gladiators. Their records of what they ate was the normal roman diet like lots of meats like cheeses that were available fruit they had a very normal diet for the time and they actually ate a lot of meat so his take was well they ate like royal gladiators ate like royalty they were fed really well so it had this discrepancy the only historical records we have of what they ate come from the elite gladiators and they ate a lot of meat and animal products and the but the bone research contradicts that so it only took me maybe 15 hours of research to find several papers on how gladiators were trained i there were a couple books it took me you know a day to read the two books to find out about uh, the gladiator lifestyle and it it turns out I mean, and so we're, we're picking point one part, one point that supposedly led him on this journey. And he says he did uh, thousands of hours of reading. So in 15, uh, we'll, we'll just give it a bit, in 48 hours of reading, what I found out is that legumes and veg- vegetation were fed, were basically free food. They were the, what the poorest of the poor ate. And that's recorded all through antiquity from Greece up through 
the Roman Empire. It was the poorest of the poor food. And the reasons that the gladiators drank the ash mixture was to preserve their bone quality. What's interesting is they learned about this, which he apparently didn't read enough to figure this out. They learned about this because this was around gladiator gladiator events started after the time of when they first started to pen raise pigs. And what they discovered is they could make pigs gain weight and get fat faster if they fed them beans and crappy vegetation material and carb like the worst part of the grains and things like that and but they also learned that the pig's bones became brittle so that's how they learned to supplement that type of diet with this ashen mixture to get to make sure the pigs got enough calcium as well so what they'd learned prior to gladiatorial competitions is that this poor people's diet the the poorest of the poor, the worst nutrition possible that would cause deficits that required the world's first dietary supplement, not a performance supplement, dietary. You would have fragile broken bones without this supplementation. They discovered it by Trump on their pigs, on making them fat, fat fatter in uh, their, their pen. And they, they fed them nuts as well. So this is where they learned about a diet and gladiators, actually the historical descriptions, they were actually, they, the trainers wanted them to be fat and they wanted them to be a little slower. These were not the ultimate athletes. The reason they wanted them to be fat was that they could endure more damage in the Colosseum and they would produce more blood without having a mortal wound. And it's important to note these gladiators were owned by gladiator schools. And then when an event came up, the event organizer rented the gladiators. So they didn't want them to die. It was for a show. They wanted them to get injured and show a lot of blood. The best way to do that is to have fat, somewhat out of shape gladiators. Um, and, and this is all historically verified. I mean, there's tons of documents on this. So these gladiators were poor athletes they they only actually had events maybe once or twice a year they often died because they were in such poor health they died in the arena and the ones on the really crappy diets that didn't survive were just buried in mass graves so his entire position his claim of what made him look into this for the ultimate athletes was something that he didn't even he based his entire claim off of the bones of the weakest, most out of shape, sick athletes, quote unquote, in the gladiatorial world. So this alone, and this sets the stage for how pathetic his research is and how it was a clear agenda. Um, because like I said, I didn't have to do a lot of work to find all of this. And then you can go back to ancient Greek culture and I thought, well, who were the ultimate athletes? In, in Rome, it was the soldiers, and you can find, actually, they have good historical documents of what the soldiers were fed, and specific, specific instances when they ran out of meat for the soldiers, and the soldiers' performance went through the toilet. And, and then even farther back in antiquity, I thought, well, Spartans were renowned as the most incredible fighting force in the ancient Greek world. 
So I looked into them, and one reason they were so amazing is that their agriculture was based off of a lot of animal husbandry. Um, they had massive amounts of meat in their diet, and to the point that it wasn't even valued that highly because everybody had so much cattle. It wasn't valued that high. It wasn't rare. Things like bread and beer, those were those had a higher value because they required a lot more work and a lot more effort to obtain. So a lot more work went into it so that it was worth more. But meat, it, it was just of low value because it was so common and it was such a heavy part of their diet. And historical records from Athens and other competing city-states at the time specifically reference their jealousy of the amount of animal products that Spartan had access to. Um, and one of Sparta's initial invasions was to get more grazing land for more cattle. And these, these were the world's, the, the ancient world's ultimate athletes, the, the Spartan soldiers. Uh, so this kind of sets the stage for how much this guy lies. Or he said he did thousands of hours of research one assumption you could make from that is it took him maybe a thousand hours to read one study. Like his, his cognitive abilities may be limited. And from how he put this, the information he put in this movie, I, I would say he's either extremely fraudulent, extremely naive, or has serious cognitive de defects. One of those three are the only explanations for why he would, he would do this movie. Um, fraud obviously leading to fi potential financial gain. Um, so I'll do more podcasts on this because every single point in this movie is completely fraudulent. Um, the, the gladiator example gives you the first instance of that where it's just horrendously bad and horrendously wrong. I mean, think about it. If you're running a gladiatorial school, on average a gladiatorial school had 2,000 gladiators that it was supporting at a time. And you had to feed all of them well what would you choose you would choose the food stuff that was waste and scrap and no good and and specifically food stuff that you actually already knew how to use to make animals fat and you also knew how to supplement the diet to make sure your gladiators didn't get sick and get broken bones so it's perfect so basically gladiators were fed pig slop and this guy is saying they were the ultimate athletes and they were vegetarians. And and you have to unpack that statement because what he's implying is they were the ultimate athletes because they were vegetarians. And that's absolutely not true. The ultimate athletes in the gladiatorial arena were the ones who had survived and then were able to purchase a diet, a high-quality diet. And they were the ones that became famous. They are the ones that we have records for. They're the ones that statues were made from. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's it's utterly ridiculous. And it, it's shameful. I, you know, it, it really makes one have to consider their admiration of people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, who, who really created this industry in a lot of ways and gave it the mass appeal that it has, which does have a lot of benefits. Uh, but he's also, people don't realize this, he was a millionaire before he was winning the Olympias. And he did it through real estate. He has a business degree. So this is a guy who's very, very business savvy. And this 
is a good business move. There's not a lot of vegan companies. If you happen to have financial stakes in vegan companies, then this is the, a brilliant movie to produce because it's pure advertising. Uh, so that's my guess as to why they were involved, purely business reasons. Uh, it's shameful, and I know it's influenced a lot of people, and a lot of people are going to suffer damage from it. But So there's a little bit of a rant, at least. Uh, George Coles, again, do I still take nicotine? Uh, I do. Uh, you know, Living outside the U.S., your options are very, very limited for nicotine. You can either smoke, which in Serbia, everybody smokes like... In Serbia, they don't measure how many packs per day they smoke. They measure in how many packs per hour. I mean, it, it, it's almost insane how much they smoke here. I think they smoke more than any other country other than maybe India or maybe it was Turkey. I don't remember. But they, it's amazing how much they smoke. Um, but I would not recommend taking up smoking. Uh, nicotine gum is harder to come by. And it's way more expensive. So I still do. And my only option is nicotine gum. Like I'm not going to find patches and all this other stuff uh, outside the United States. I'm much more limited. Uh, let's see. And this is from Vladen uh, Stoikev. I, I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. This is Mike. And he's... His question is also some back-to-basics questions. Uh, could you say that insulin control and timing is of utmost importance while building up a great healthy body or breaking down a bad, sick, fat body? Insulin control meaning carb carbs control. So th there's a really fine point because insulin control and carb control are two very different things. Uh, you will get insulin. You can and do get insulin spikes, not spikes, but high elevations of insulin from eating protein uh this is so insulin control and carb control are two different things and the the timing is important of when you eat carbs that hasn't changed uh, evenings are always going to be best for several metabolic reasons and how they're tuned really depend i mean it depends on a lot of variables which I've learned over the last several years, a good base procedure for athletics is carb backloading. Like I, the, the research led me in the right direction there. But also a good base diet for fat loss is the carbonite solution. The research led me in the right direction there. The problem is there's a lot more scenarios and a lot more data that you need to take into account and when you do, you get into this fine order specification. So pretty much the, the best somebody could do without the extreme technical side would be carb backloading or, or the carbonate solution. Uh, so yes, carb control is important. Insulin control is not so important. And that's a very fine distinction and for most people, what that translates into, you really need to watch when you eat your carbs. Um, Tim Cook. Uh, can you explain the effects on mitochondria having too costly, 
constantly change energy source from fat to carbon, how it affects health. Uh, th that's an interesting question, and that's one reason I wanted to write the dinitrophenyl uh, article or a couple of articles is because, first of all, we have this mistaken idea, and I still hear it referenced, is that you have to become fat adapted. That's idiotic. That's like telling an alcoholic that to stop drinking alcohol, they have to become water adapted. That's idiotic. The, the alcohol is the problem and the alcohol is causing metabolic disturbances. Carbohydrates are the same way. Your body always knows how to burn fat, but the carbohydrates are what's screwing up the system. You have to get them out of your system to let the body operate correctly. So constantly changing back and forth, it's really an interesting phenomenon because what it does is it puts a lot of stress on what's called the electron transport chain, which causes this massive, these massive rises in electron leakage through part of the chain when there's too much energy coming in, which happens every time you eat carbs. The regulation for carbohydrates is very poor in the mitochondria. So you get a lot of electron leakage, which destroys the outer membrane and inner membranes of the mito individual mitochondria. Uh, one of those effects I've talked about before is carbonylation, which basically some of the radicals break down the outer part of the mitochondria and make it dysfunctional. So it has a harder time allowing nutrients back and forth. And where it loses some of the ability is the larger molecules have a harder time getting through. The larger molecules are the fat. So what we see is when somebody has a hard time transitioning from a carb-based diet to a fat-based diet, their mitochondria become so damaged, they can't get the adequate flux of fat through the mitochondria to meet energy needs. And it'll take time. The mitochondria has to be repaired or replaced which is not an easy task. And this also leads to the paradox that we often see of where people don't eat very much, but they have tons of body fat, so they should not be hungry. The problem is their mitochondria is so damaged, it cannot absorb the large long chain fatty acids for energy like it needs to. So the result is the the cells of the body see themselves as not having access to enough energy, even though their body's loaded with it. And this starts off the cascade of hunger signals. So it, you don't need to be fat adapted. You need to get off of the poison, which is the carbohydrates in this, this case. And when I say poison, I mean it in the literal sense of the, po the poison is in the dose. So a regular carbohydrate-based diet is constantly flipping if you're healthy it's flipping the switch between too much energy flux which damages the mitochondria to in those in-between periods it takes a while for the fat switch to switch back on to take over the energy production needs so then you're putting it in this high flux mode and then it switches to a low flux mode for a period and this is if, even if you're healthy that low flux mode also causes problems in the electron transport chain, which ends up damaging mitochondrial DNA at that point more than membrane. 
So if so think about this. If you're eating multiple carbohydrate meals throughout the day, you're constantly flipping on and off chronic damage to your mitochondria. Chronic. And over time, the damage gets to the point where the cells can't even flip back into burning fat efficiently. And this is why we we see correlations in the data, and this explains those correlations between uh, what they call uh, fuel fuel selection flexibility or whatever you want to, metabolic flexibility, whatever terms you want to call it. If the cells can flip back and forth rather rapidly, then you have healthier mitochondria, healthier mitochondria. But as you get older, they cannot flip as easily because you've destroyed the mitochondria to a point that they can't start utilizing fat as quickly. And this is where ketone production becomes very important because ketones are a smaller molecule that can enter the mitochondria more easily in that damaged state. So this is this is like very complex interplay of a lot of different things here, but it, it the result in the macroscopic level is like how you should eat. You just shouldn't be eating carbs multiple meals a day every day. Uh, once a day is fine if you're exercising. Um, and this has benefits and the benefits of the exercise, the appropriate type of exercise, which is not endurance, the, this mitigates and actually creates a situation that can repair some of the mitochondrial damage. So a, a tiny, you actually don't even necessarily have any damage. The massive carbohydrate flux can be soaked up through glycogen storage which is what normally would prevent mitochondrial damage when eating a carbohydrate-based meal. Um, Most people, unfortunately, their glycogen levels are mostly full and they're eating constantly and that flux has to be pushed through the cells. Uh, So so that's the start of the answer to constantly changing energy sources. And you, if you're on a carb-based diet, you are constantly trying to change energy sources and you are constantly damaging your mitochondria. Uh, this, this also explains why we see these fasting diets recommended and why they work. They're recommended because of the ignorance of whoever's recommending them. They work because you're starving the cells of carbohydrates long enough for the cells to get back to the point of being able to burn fat. And as they're doing that, you have taken out the constant switching back and forth. Well, you can also do that with a ketogenic diet, uh, if you know what you're doing. Uh, you don't need to tell people to fast. Fasting, in my opinion, it's the analogy of, well, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And and it's an ad hoc kind of solution. It's like, well, we notice when people intermittently or when they fast, they get these benefits and that's just correlative you need to have the underlying hypothesis of why this is working because if you don't you can't answer a lot of other questions and that's really important uh is my new book goes into this in detail it's, it's really important to understand how the body works not to come up with reasons why your diet works it's a very very big difference i i can't emphasize that enough uh, Tim Tim Prince, uh, this is an interesting question. Uh, he he asks he's he's always been scared of deadlifting or squatting since he's seen so many people hurt themselves due to poor poor form. Uh, 
what exercises would you use instead of squatting or deadlifting for heavy lifters? Uh, he's 40. He's been working out for 13 years. Um, first of all, I have a different relationship with deadlifts and squatting than most heavy lifters do. And that's because to lift really heavy in those exercises, you, you need to use a weight belt. And that's so that you can maintain the pressure on your, your core and against your spine to make sure that you can lift heavy without damaging a lot of that support structure. So over the years, what I come to conclude is that's a really bad idea. What you should be doing is what you should be doing is uh, I've got to pause here for a second. I want to clear my throat. What you should be doing is lifting as heavy as possible without a belt, and that should be your limiting weight goal especially if you're looking for health or physique if you're competitive in those lifts obviously that's not an option but if you're not if you don't plan to be competitive and what you want is a really healthy body and healthy physique you should be doing those as heavy as your core can support naturally and this this requires a lot of effort and goes to to tim's question because you have to learn how to act at activate your core correctly uh, specifically your transverse abdominal muscles because you need to hold everything in and this is the exact opposite force control that you use if you wear a weight belt because then you're you learn to push out with your abdomen and that's why interestingly they did a, a study if you've noticed in home depot a lot of the workers, I don't know if they still do, but they used to give them the, a type of weightlifting belt that's used in the gym. They thought it would prevent back pains. Once they gave that out to employees over the years, they had, I think it was a 50% or 100% rise in back injuries. And it's because people weren't wearing it all the time. And then obviously when they went home, they didn't wear it. So what you learn with that on is to push out whenever you try to lift with your core muscles. Well, if you don't have the support to push back, then you've given up all support in your core and on the spine, and you're going to injure yourself pretty quickly. So you have to learn to activate the transverse abdominus, which pulls everything in. That gives you the support, and then that's where you should be doing deadlifts and squats. It also prevents that large widening of the waist above the hips that you often see in really strong, powerful lifters. It'll avoid that. And that's why women, when I work with and train women, I highly recommended they ditch their weightlifting belt if they had it uh, when they did deadlifts and squats. And I taught them how to activate their transverse abdominal muscles, and it kept their midsection svelte and tight. And you'll notice a very big difference in clients I trained versus some others. Like they started to get some widening in the gut, and that's why. So replacement exercises for that, first of all, you shouldn't replace them. You should be performing them at the level 
that your core can handle without a weightlifting belt. And that will slowly increase. And it's just going to give you a stronger, tighter core. And it would make you a better athlete all around, period, if you're not a, a power lifter. Let's say, you know, power lifter, power lifting, it's not an option. Um, to replace that, I mean, you can replace it with exercises that then don't require the load to be held by the core. Um, leg press, a lot of people don't like, pre- like leg press. They complain about it. Uh, I had arguments with past trainers like Jesse Burdick over the angled leg press. But if you learn to do it correctly, it doesn't put any stress on the lower back. Uh, so that's one replacement. Leg extensions aren't, aren't bad per se. You, you need to be careful about your positioning. And that's kind of the unfortunate, or well, it's fortunate for trainers, but it's unfortunate for most most people because they don't have access to trainers, period. Maybe that's the case. Or they don't have access to trainers who can ensure that they use the correct form before they start to move up in weight. And that's very important because if you exercise in the correct form, then everything gets stronger and then you can and it becomes almost reflexive and then you can move to the heavy weights and, and start to to build up that way but that's what i would write you shouldn't actually eliminate squats you should use them to the point that your core can handle and i don't think you should eliminate deadlift either i think you should perform it to the level that perform it to the level that your core can handle without a weight lifting belt um that's very important for overall health and if you're any kind of athlete, it's incredibly important for top performance. The transverse abdominis have many, many functions when the body is moving through space, which is almost any type of athletic competition. Uh, where that obviously is not true is if you're powerlifting, your body's not really moving through space as much. So those would be my recommendations on the matter. Um, well, I... I just now got the okay. I, I thought I had an okay to train, um, but I, it was recommended to me that I wait a little bit longer because I'm still having some some blood issues from the the DVT that formed because of the surgery. And you know, I'll, so my current training is non-existent, unfortunately. Um, but when when I was training, I very heavily centered on hack squat machines. Your your upper body does still handle the weight but the way it's distributed it takes some stress off the back i used angled leg press and i i still squatted and deadlifted and uh, stiff-legged deadlift so i did not eliminate those but i definitely they did not become a core component of my heavy lifts they went as heavy as my abdominal muscles as my core could handle which is still very heavy uh, but I didn't, I wasn't really concerned about the weight on those so much um, because I wanted a tight, strong core that was, that was powerful and adept at any physical situation. Uh, it, otherwise, if you're using the weightlifting belt, then what you're doing is you're making it adept only in a very specific, not normal scenario, which means injuries at some point. Let's see. Uh, Same question. Uh, This is from Tim Cook again. Can you also please discuss your thoughts on resistance training and the importance or not of training to failure? 
particularly how it relates to hypertrophy and mitochondrial health. This is another one of those complex subjects. And the key is training to failure. So there's obviously a lot of metabolic processes going on, but one of the key ones is you're tapping into and mobilizing glycogen in the muscle at the highest rate possible. Um, because if, if you look at what happens in the cell when you train to failure, there's never a lack of energy. Uh, the, the cell actually is fine. Even, even with creatine becoming depleted, there's never a lack of ATP that would cause what we see of as failure. Um, there is high amount of cycling. We need to revamp our entire thought about lactate production and lactic acid and so on and so forth. It seems like during exercise performance, most carbohydrate usage goes through the lactate shuttle. And th there's a lot of reasons for that. And that's one reason I wanted to put it, have the DNP article, because if you understand how DNP works, the dinitrophenyl, then you start to understand how carbohydrates work and how it is that they damage the cell. Um, in this situation, though, the high flux is being used so you don't get electron leakage. So if you're, you're training to failure, you're getting the maximum glycogen burning flux, mobilization flux that you can. And that is a very, very important factor to muscle growth. Uh, actually, a lot of my transition equations that go from minimal muscle growth from a workout to maximal, what I found in the data is they all correlate to the maximum glycogen flux. So that's important. That's why training to failure is very important, and it doesn't matter at what level. Now, this, this has a caveat, of course, because once you train for longer, once if that failure position or close to failure position goes past... A certain amount of time I'd have to look at the time charts again I think it's it's not very long it's uh, it's only a few seconds then actually what happens is the fat energy system starts to take up some of the slack it starts to become highly oxidative and that cripples glycogen flux so if your sets last too long going to failure doesn't actually necessarily mean the same amount of growth so you have to get failure within a certain window. And that's why the research continually comes back with even three reps to failure is more effective than 20. And this sweet spot is obviously going to vary for different people for healthy males in their 20s, which is where that three rep research was done originally and very few sets. They're mobilizing glycogen like crazy. They have high testosterone levels. They have healthy mitochondria. They get massive glycogen flux. And they can get away with three reps to failure, very few sets. As you get older and your testosterone levels attenuate or your mitochondria aren't as healthy, then you need to be in a little higher regime. So in general, I usually want to see people get failure in 8 to 12 rep range. It's usually a range that seems to work for everybody. It doesn't hurt younger people. Um, it doesn't lead to overtraining. And in that range, you can also pretty much feel when your glycogen reserves are exhausted, especially if you're on carb backloading or carb night or something like that. Like you can tell your reserves are exhausted and you can't go on. And it's time to move to a different muscle group or a different exercise. Uh, so, so it is important um, it, but it's not important for the reasons that we usually associate with going to failure.
Uh, oh, I got a like on uh, Apple's business model. Yeah, I just a little commentary on that. I started really thinking about how Apple treats its customers, and it it really does treat its customers as if Apple's a, a pimp in a way. I mean, it it wants you to pay a bunch of money for a device that then it's it's it uses your data to make more money, and then they actually sell access to the device so that other people can make more money off of you that, that you don't see any of. I mean, you're paying, you're literally paying Apple for Apple to make money off of you. And then the way they set up their devices, they make it very hard, if not impossible, to ever leave their platform. So it, it it's this really horrendous business model. I've never been a fan of Apple. I think they're one of the, they have one of the worst corporate ethics of any company and that was even under Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs actually pioneered the corporate ethic that they operate under. And, and that ethic is why they went bankrupt the first time. Uh, the, the field has changed since, and they're able to thrive for now. Uh, I, I, I really hope that they either change their business model uh, so that they, they do actually put the customer first rather than treating the customer as uh, essentially a prostitute or that they just go under again. Uh, I would be happy with either of those two scenarios. Uh, I, I'm also very unhappy with their health program, uh, their health goal, their health initiative. Um, one of their recent studies where they, they, were using, they were using their Apple Watch to look at risk factors or prediction of some sort of myocardial infraction and they got 11,000 participants, which was amazing. But 90% of those participants were like 23 to 30 something, of which mitocardial infraction does not occur. And they only had a very small percentage of people that it was applicable to. And out of 11,000 people, they made a handful of positive predictions. But in the paper, they they gave these amazing results of their predictive ability. Well, if you're using a population that's 23 to 35, of course your device is going to predict that they won't have myocardial infraction because they never do. Um, and they're, they're using this specifically not to advance science and not to advance health, but to advance their business model and to participate more fully in the manufacturing of disease. And there'll be other places where I go over that. Um, but as you can tell, I'm no fan of Apple. Um, it's the highest uh, beef having the highest insulin response, cryotherapy again. Um, coaching certification, rice pudding, flaxseed oil, uh, nicotine, a lot of repeat questions. Ah, this is from Tim Cook, and this is this is actually a very interesting question. He asks, well, what is optimal for health, mitochondrial number or size? Is there any role in addition, in addition to resistance training for low-intensity endurance for mitochondrial health? This is a, a very interesting question because it's not, <clears throat> it's not actually a mitochondrial number or size. It turns out, it's the ratio of surface area of the entire mitochondrial colony to the total volume. 
and this is an esoteric parameter. I don't expect you to just hear that and be like, oh, I totally understand. What it correlates to is a, a large number of smaller mitochondria. Now, I take this, and with everything I've done, this seems to be the absolute best measure to tell if an organ or a tissue is sick is to look at this ratio of surface area to volume of mitochondria in the cells. Um, it, it's not necessarily, I, I believe they have some blood tests that might correlate to it now. Uh, some other researchers have looked at this as well. But currently, the only time this specification is used is after a heart attack. Uh, because a damaged heart, the heart muscles actually have very low surface area compared to the volume of the mitochondria. And there's several reasons for that. So it, it's not the number of mitochondria, and it's not the size of the mitochondria. It is a group. It is, it is a parameter based off of both. And that's why there's some conflicting evidence if you just try to look at mitochondria number or you just try to look at mitochondria size. There's conflicting evidence because it is a combination of the two parameters that gives you a sense of mitochondrial health. Now, for endurance training, we actually do see, assuming you're on the right diet most of the time, uh, so that would be a ketogenic diet, we do see an increase in both. We see an increase in number of mitochondria and, well, and a decrease in size of mitochondria, which means we get a larger surface ratio surface area to volume ratio that's very healthy for a cell uh, unfortunately under the carbohydrate regime that can then become over time you're still causing damage one advantage is with more mitochondria that damage can be split across a larger colony and it'll be much much longer until you see any type of health deficit and this is seen in a lot of runners profession uh, non-professionals in particular they they run to maintain their weight and they, they're used to doing that in their 20s and as they get older and older they start to gain some some body fat in their in their midsection so they think they need to re run more and more and then they continue to gain weight what they've done is they've damage their mitochondria to the point that the running is doing nothing other than adding on to the damage. So there, there's a really fine balance for health between what your mitochondria, in your mitochondria colony. And you have to weigh this against your athletic goals. If, if your goal is to be an ultra endurance athlete, then you, you shouldn't be worrying about it. You should just be training appropriately and eating the best way possible to mitigate any damage. Uh, endurance training is one of the few things, especially competitive, high endurance activities like marathon running, um, triathlon, uh, Ironman triathletes, ultra marathoners. You will not put a stop to the damage, but you can eat in such a way to mitigate much of the damage and that would lead to and that would lead to longer lifespans obviously that would lead to higher quality muscle as you age which means less sickness it would lead to lower chances of cancer and it would also lead to lower heart problems um, people 
often gloss over this, but if, if you run a lot, especially if you're in the high endurance range, like marathon running, you, you develop heart problems. And um, that's why was it I think is Jim Fix was the one who popularized running for health. He's like, oh, you know, I'm going to live forever. Well, he dropped dead on a run at, when he was 51. And what happened was he, he was accumulating mitochondrial damage in his heart. And it caused some heart issues, and he had and he had a familial history of heart problems. So those two coupled together were a death sentence. And he didn't, not he, w- the scientific community. And when I say we, that's what I'm. I'm always referencing the scientific community. We didn't understand at the time those connections. So it's it's through no fault of his own, and it's unfortunate that his life was cut short because he was an advocate of of health you know his goal was to try to make people healthier unfortunately his methodologies made a lot of people more sick so ultra endurance and and i've trained endurance athletes specifically for marathons or events like soccer uh things like that where you have where you have a lot of you're running on the field quite often um try ironman triathletes and you you can train for that and mitigate all the damage so that if you ever decide to quit, you're not in this disease deficit. Uh, you're, you're still relatively healthy. Uh, so it's a very good question with l- levels and levels of implications that I'm not going to cover here because I'm writing an entire book about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, then this is from Sam Ellis. Any thoughts on fasting? I talked about that. I You know, I think... Fasting is what you do when you don't understand how the body works. And that's all it is. People recommending fasting just don't understand. They don't care to understand. Um, This is essentially the position of, well, when we do this, we see these results. So we're just going to assume it's good. Um, and, And they're correlating animal studies that to date do not extrapolate up to heavier mammals. Um, they're just assuming that it's good. And, and and I would argue if you're really sick, fasting is, is also accelerating damage in your cells because you're switching back and forth between high and low energy fluxes and the mitochondria aren't quite in the situation yet where they can adequately use body fat to maintain energy flux. So you're, you're just cycling damage again. Um, it, it's something that should be actually i don't know why you would ever use fasting Uh, i can think of no reason whatsoever uh, that you would use fasting now i see where it has benefits as in if you are stranded on a desert island you should have some capacity to fast for a long period of time without food without dying but in in this day-to-day world there there's really no need to do the fasting uh, if you're super healthy, so if you're young in your 20s, then you can you can get away with the fasting without really increasing damage to a large extent. The problem is it's being recommended to older people who need to lose a lot of body fat or even younger people who need to lose a lot of body fat. They're in a position where that that can increase their damage and most likely will increase their mitochondrial damage, even if they lose body fat. And that's a really important point to make is if you have x if you are sick 
if you are in the disease state at the mitochondrial level, you will gain body fat, excess body fat. But that doesn't mean that it, that if you lose weight or you're thin, that you're not causing metabolic damage. So being fat is a symptom of that damage, but you can have that damage and not be fat. Uh, just like other diseases, there's normal symptoms that you might get with them, but you could be sick without the symptoms. Uh, it's a very important point to make. So it's, it, I, I, I just don't see why you would ever recommend fasting unless you're ignorant about how the body works. Um, so I guess it's a little bit of a rant. Uh, leucine, and the question also adds in uh, using nicotine and leucine. Use nicotine sparingly. You should always use those drugs. They they lose efficacy if you try to use them too much. Um, I have the recommendations in the nicotine declassified. I haven't really changed those much. Um, they, they it does have some neuroprotective effects, so it is worth using. Uh, leucine never hurts to supplement. With leucine, it's it's really good at helping to preserve mass, especially if you are b below your caloric needs. Uh, leucine can be oxidized uh, rather rather effectively, and it can help preserve lean tissue. Mm. Uh, Tim Prince is asking. He no longer has access to his laptop, and he wants to know if body AI is useful on the cell phone. And actually, we went. We did a lot of work to make sure that the cell phone interface is very usable. So, because I mean, that's the idea. You you need to be you need to input information through the day. So, having it on the cell phone is important. And we put a lot of work into making sure it was very usable on your cell phone and actually some features are easier if you're on your cell phone and body AI. So this is another question from George Coles and uh, I've made the comment before about uh, if cooking bacon and co coconut oil helps to switch out some of the fat in the bacon with uh, MCT oil and he asked if this is the case with cooking anything with coconut oil and coconut oil like penetrates very well because it's a short chain fatty acid so cooking anything in coconut oil will help to change the fatty acid balance of whatever you're cooking in now of course if what you're cooking with doesn't have much fat and you're using a lot of coconut oil the coconut oil will saturate the item and increase the fat content and i have new views on medium chain triglycerides um I think a lot of the ways people are recommending that they be used actually leads to mitochondrial damage. Now, it, I, I'm not suggesting that you give up your MCTs. If you're on a ketogenic diet or say the carnivore diet, which I guess coconut oil is not really carnivore, coconut oil could cause no problems. It's when you try to mix coconut oil with any type of carbohydrate-based diet that there might be significant metabolic issues. Um, but it can also be used for a tool. So I have a very complex 
thought process around MCT now that I didn't before. And I still think it's highly useful because it does help to transport, as I said in part one, more DHA omega-3 fatty acid into the brain, which is incredibly important. So it definitely has a use in the diet. Uh, yeah, I, I think that basically answers that. Uh, th this is an interesting question and gets the root of a lot of things that I did while I was stuck in bed with my, my torn quad. So Destin Chapman asks, what differentiates my work from those who practice evidence-based nutrition? So we have to, and this, like I struggle with a lot of concepts that define science over this past year. And I did a lot of reading in uh, essentially the philosophy of science, which is a huge, well-developed work. Most of you will, will know the name of Karl Popper. He was the famous, well, uh, anything that's not fals falsifiable isn't scientific. And as you read into the literature, that turns out to be a very, very poor definition of science. Uh, if that were the case, we wouldn't have any science whatsoever. And, and it, it, it's very poor. Only somebody completely ignorant of what science is would use Karl Popper's argument uh, to defend science or to denigrate somebody's idea. Uh, it, it's, it's a poor, poor postulate and it's not really applicable at all and it never has been through the history of science. So, uh, I mean, kudos, it, it, it was a great idea, but on further examination, it totally falls apart. It's, it's a junk comment. Um, so, you know, I, I specifically sat back and thought of what science is and this this answers the question of what differentiates me from evidence-based science so evidence-based science is only only observational and this is a very very important distinction so it depends on what you what your end goal is is the evidence that you'll use to support it and so if your end goal is weight loss, which everybody focuses on weight loss, which I just talked about as being a symptom, if your focus is looking on how to alter that symptom, all the evidence is pointing to that. Unfortunately, the evidence doesn't uncover what's going on under the system. You need other types of science for that. And, and that's other scientific evidence. Now, the problem is, as you dig deeper, you might start to form a hypothesis that then starts to explain a lot of data, and but it, it might have other consequences. Now, the evidence-based approach specifically excludes hypotheses, which it, its proclamation is you should never do anything based off of a hypothesis. No matter how much observational data is behind it, if there's no direct evidence, then you shouldn't consider it. And I and, and this is anti-scientific. You know, their evidence-based nutrition is essentially the nutrition of ignorance. It's like, well, we've seen this, this is what the evidence says, so this is exactly what we're gonna do. Well, you might be doing something that masks a lot of things under the surface. 
and you really need to start asking a lot of questions. So yes, there's a ton of evidence that if you cut people's calories, they lose body fat. Now, how do you balance that against there's now a ton of evidence that if you cut people's carbohydrates, they lose a lot of body fat. There's also a ton of evidence that if you just cut people's calories, they lose a bunch of body fat, but within two years, they can't maintain the diet and they gain it back. Well, what do you do with that evidence? You just throw it out? And apparently they do. They're like, well, you know, that evidence isn't important. Well, your hypothesis should explain all of that which will lead you to new avenues of study that then give you better procedures. No science in the history of the world that has made significant contributions to the world has ever been just evidence-based. That's actually really stupid. It is a stupid conception of science and it is a stupid conception of how to navigate the world especially now that we know how complex the world is. It can mask a lot of things that we don't notice that could have major consequences. So think about the earth rotating. You don't feel that. There's no evidence if you're walking down the street that the earth is rotating about its axis or that the axis is tilted or that it's going around the sun. But that has major consequences if you want to use things like satellites and you want to erect radio towers that can have direct contact with other radio towers, or you want to bounce signals off of the ionosphere, you know, it has important consequences. So if we only ever based our conception of the world on evidence, we would have made no advancements whatsoever. And that's what evidence-based nutrition and exercise is doing. It's looking at, well, like, this is all we see, so this is the only thing we should do. And that's a very big problem. It's very anti-scientific. It masks over a lot of things that are going on under the surface. And, you know, if you cut calories and you're on a mixed, mixed macronutrient diet, you cut a lot of calories, you make the body more sick. Part of the evidence that they need to consider is, well, every time we do this, people gain weight back and they get fatter. What are we going to do with that evidence? Well, you need to develop a scientific theory that explains all of that. The problem is they're, they think scientific theories are abhorrent because they're not a direct observation of evidence. Um, there, there's actually uh, an article in written by a statistician that really goes goes a little bit more into detail in this but you know you also also think about it the nutrition by evidence or exercise by evidence or even medicine by evidence is only focused on correlation and that can cause massive problems and let me give you one more example of that in uh, evidence-based medicine which is the evidence all points to if you give people cholesterol-lowering medication, you lower their cholesterol levels, and you do get some benefits. I mean, that's the evidence. There's a lot of evidence that's conflicting, um, but you do have evidence of you can lower cholesterol levels. And the question is, that's the goal. The goal is lowering cholesterol levels. It's equivalent to lowering body fat levels problem is we didn't know what 
what that really correlated like what does lower cholesterol levels actually mean and we didn't know that but the evidence was clear if you take cholesterol lowering medication you lower cholesterol levels now a consequence of that is that you then increase the risk of of forming diabetes but if you don't come up with a theory of why lowering cholesterol levels of what that does in the body then you might never make the connection to the cholesterol medication increasing diabetes risk. And then with diabetes, if you give people diabetes medication, you what you what you do in that case is yes, you lower insulin levels and then you seem to mitigate a lot of symptoms. The problem is you shift the damage load from the pancreas and from from uh, other glute glute 4 receptive tissues so that's skeletal muscle tissue and fat tissue so you take away that those symptoms but then you increase the disease load on everything else and that's the brain the liver um, all of these things and and so what you should find is with an increase in diabetes medication use you should see an increase in cancer risk and that data exists and actually what I what my theory would predict is not only would you just see an increase in cancer risk, you should see specifically an increase in cancer risk in the tissues most affected by diabetes medication, which are like skeletal muscle tissue and uh, fat tissue. And that is the data that nobody's made sense of up to this point. It's giving people diabetes medication increases the incidence of these soft tumors these soft tissue tumors and that that is underpinned by a theory that you could never come to with the evidence and that's why evidence is one part of science so you can't do you can't achieve the entire goal of science with one small part and that's what just like you can never achieve the goal of science by just sit around sitting around coming up with hypotheses because that's one part of science all of this is important and that's why what i do is completely different because i use the evidence to develop a hypothesis and then i use that hypothesis which naturally explains the evidence i looked at but i use that hypothesis to try to explain evidence and i go out and i look for evidence that completely contradicts my hypothesis those are all aspects of real science the evidence-based approach is basically the ostrich putting its head in the sand approach it it achieves nothing Uh, it hides from the real problems that we face so this is another hour chunk and i've still got more questions to answer so i'm going to end this one here and this is part two